So tonight we're looking at Exodus. I'm going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 23, and go through verse 25. And then I'm going to jump around a little bit in chapter 3 and all the way in chapter 14. Uh, You can follow along on the wall. All the text that I'm reading is printed there. It's also in the bulletin. So this is God's word for you tonight. Let's give it our attention. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed." And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So I'll stop there and move to chapter 14 and read verse 5 through 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people of Israel had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Haheroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves, or is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless it as we study it tonight. 
Father, tonight we come to you. We come to you as people that don't know everything, as people that can't be everywhere, as people that are limited both in our insight, in our abilities, in all sorts of ways. Lord, we fall short. And so we come tonight hearing that Christianity and the Bible teach that you are none of those things. You are unlimited. You are everywhere. You are all-powerful and all-knowing. And you have revealed yourself to us in these stories that constitute the Bible. And so tonight, Father, we ask that you would speak to us through this narrative. We ask that you would speak to us no matter where we are coming from. No matter this week if we've strayed away from thinking about you at all, if, if we come tonight from a place of unbelief or doubt, if we come tonight from a place of faith that we grew up with, that our parents taught us and that their parents taught them. Father, no matter where we're coming from tonight, spiritually or emotionally or psychologically, we ask that you would come and meet with us and help us to discern if what you claim in these stories is true. And if true, help us to see that you're worthy of our worship and that you're worthy of our trust. Father, may we tonight give over our allegiance to you. And Father, we confess that that is difficult for us to do because we like to be our own masters And yet so often we find ourselves when we try to rule our lives in the midst of deep peril. And so we come to you saying that we need rescue and ask that you would come and save us. Do that work tonight in each heart here. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Um, Some of Shakespeare's most famous plays in earlier centuries, not so much today, were his comedies. And in one of his comedies called As You Like It, he has a very, very famous line that he writes that actually is spoken in the play by a fool. And um, it's probably a line that even if you've never read or heard that play, you are aware of. Here's what the line is. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. As we've been thinking tonight and for the past few weeks about the Bible, about this story that the Bible tells us, and as we've been coming from a Christian perspective, thinking that this story is both true and beautiful, uh, I think that that phrase summarizes in many ways really what the Bible is and what it is intended to communicate, that this world is a stage. This world is a stage and all of us are players. All of us are actors in the great drama of our lives. But the main character in the play of this universe is God himself. That's why we're calling this series the story of God. It's it's God's story. God is the protagonist. God is the main character. God is the hero. And there's probably no place in the Bible where that idea is better expressed and more vividly demonstrated than in the book of Exodus which is what we arrive at tonight. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. If you've never read it before from the Bible, my guess is most of you have at least heard the story of the ancient Hebrew God rescuing his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and parting the Red Sea so that they could cross into the Promised Land. We're going to spend tonight and next week thinking about how Exodus, how the Exodus, the event of God rescuing his ancient people, plays into this broader story of God that he's telling us in the Bible. And we also want to think about how it plays into our individual stories. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? 
But before we jump into Exodus, I've got to catch you up. Because last week, if you were here, we talked about this guy Abraham. And now we're jumping about 500 years into the future. Um, And so let me tell you what's happened in the intermediary time that we skipped in the Bible. God made these big promises, these audacious promises to Abraham. We saw last week in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. He came to Abraham, whose wife was barren, and he said, I'm going to give you a son. And not only am I going to give you a son, but you're going to be the father, Abraham, of a great nation. And every nation in the world is going to be blessed through your people, through your family. And moreover, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land that you currently do not possess. Even though at the time that land was possessed by all sorts of other tribes, God promised Abraham this prime piece of ancient real estate. Well, Abraham died believing those promises And God spoke the same promises to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and to Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. And as Abraham's family continued to multiply and continued to seek to obey this God who had revealed himself to them, we find in the story of the Bible that through God's miraculous providence and working in their lives, they find their way to Egypt. Abraham's family, which by this point, about a hundred years after Abraham, is a big family. Um, Jacob had 12 sons, and there's a famine in the place where they live, and so they have to go to Egypt, where Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, has just happened to become the, the prime minister, the president, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. They live in a very fertile, fruitful part of Egypt, and there they continue to rapidly increase in number. Joseph dies, and Exodus opens the second book of the Bible by moving us forward 400 years. And in the 400-year interim period where Abraham's family is in Egypt, they move from being a family to being a nation. And Exodus opens with God's people filling the land of Egypt. But over these 400 years... The people of God, the people of Abraham, have fallen out of favor with the Egyptian government, with Pharaoh the king. And Pharaoh has basically made them all indentured servants who are responsible to build the state government-funded projects of that day. Perhaps the pyramids and other famous landmarks that might still exist in places like Cairo. The people of God work now for the state to build these great projects and these great buildings. And decade after decade passes and century after century passes. And God's people, Abraham's family, the Israelites, which they are now called, they move from being a people who are well thought of and beloved to being a people who are oppressed diminished, and barely tolerated. And furthermore, in these intervening centuries, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God that we've been reading about in the Christian scriptures that has revealed himself to these men and made these amazing promises, seems to, in many ways, fade into the background. So that century upon century passes and God's people are now enslaved. But then God comes back into the story and raises up a new man to work through. This man's name is Moses. And God calls Moses to rescue and deliver, to be the agent of redemption, of God's redemption, for his enslaved people. And that's the story of Exodus. Tonight we're just going to look in summary fashion at the Exodus itself. 
and really think about what it's intended to communicate to us now, living 3,500 years later. What does this part of the story of God mean for you? How is it relevant to what you're experiencing in the last few days and to what you're going to experience in the next few days? Well, there's many things, of course, that I could say to you about that. I would actually encourage you to read the full story on your own, maybe even this week. But for tonight, I want to share three things with you about the Exodus. Exodus fundamentally is all about God coming to the rescue. Exodus is about the God, the true God, the maker of this world who delivers his people out of bondage. God is a God who rescues. Three things. God will rescue you out of loneliness. God will rescue you out of oppression. And God will rescue you out of slavery. He will rescue you out of loneliness, out of oppression, and out of slavery. Those are the three things I want to share with you tonight from God's word in Exodus. So let's look first at this idea that God will rescue you from loneliness. And I want you to look in the text with me again back in chapter 2, where we read suddenly out of nowhere that during those many days, verse 23, the king of Egypt died. This is sort of summarizing what I just explained to you. The people of Israel Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And then verse 24, God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. And I love how beautifully this narrative is constructed. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. Now, there's much we can say about this verse itself, but let me just put it this way at the outset. When God comes and speaks to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to rescue the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, by that point, think about it. It has been 400 years, four centuries, since the people of God have heard something like this from this maker and fashioner of the people who made these great promises to them centuries ago. Think about, think about the loneliness and, frankly, the doubt that they must have been experiencing as they lay toiling day in and day out in Egypt. Just pick, put yourself there. Imagine with me that you're a little Egyptian child. Right before the rise of Moses and all these events of Exodus begin... And imagine that you wake up every day and you see your parents go to work doing extremely hard, back-breaking manual labor and not getting paid for it at all. Imagine that you wake up every day and see your people physically and verbally oppressed and abused. Imagine that when you go play in the dirt streets in front of your hovel, you can look down the street and see the Egyptian boys and girls playing with all the toys and all the treats and all the delights that come with being a privileged people in a given culture. And imagine then that you go home at night as this young boy or young girl and you hear your parents tell you that our people have a God. His name is Yahweh. And he made promises to our ancestors, to this man Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He told us that he would give us a land and then you look around and you, and you see your people in a foreign land being abused. 
And they say to the child, he, he told us that we would bless every nation and that we would be a great nation. And then you look around and know that you have no king, you have no law, you have no policy, you have no constitution. You are an enslaved people group. And they say he promised that, that the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Son of Eve would come through us one day and free the entire universe. And you look around and you see the horrible injustices that are being oppressed upon your people every day, and you think, there is no way that this God cares about me. I am alone. I have been abandoned along with my family. You know, it's been 400 years. I mean, think about you parents trying to talk to your kids about something that happened 400 years ago. 1614, like Jamestown. Right, the Jamestown settlement in Virginia, and you try to explain to your kids how deeply relevant the Jamestown experience is to their present lives, and you get the blank stare from your children because they can't even begin to imagine what happened 400 years ago. That's the situation in which the Israelites find themselves enslaved in Egypt when Moses comes along. They were lonely. They felt abandoned. They were impoverished. But then God shows up again. And he says, I see you. I hear you. I am coming to rescue. Do you ever feel alone? Maybe right now, you feel like you've been abandoned. That no one really understands you. That that you don't have anyone that's close enough to you that you can fully be yourself with. You, are, you feel like you are out on your own, left to fend for yourselves. You know, I know a lot of you are moms that have young kids, and you stay at home during the day, and you do laundry, and you change diapers, and you make meals, and then you do more laundry and change more diapers, or maybe you let the diaper slide for a while because you've got to make a meal, and you think, if I could just get out of here and talk to someone over the age of 12, it would be good for me. You feel alone. You, you feel in many, in many ways sort of trapped in this existence that God has called you to. You wonder if anyone really understands what it's like to experience your life every day. Exodus tells you that God cares. God understands. Many of you are young professionals who work in various fields in our city. Maybe you're in the military. Maybe you're in the private sector. But you get up and you go to work every day. You do what you've been trained to do. And you come home and you go through your evening routine, whether you're single or married, whether you have kids or don't have them. And you get up and do the same thing again the next day. And oftentimes you feel, you know, is this really all there is? Is this what the rest of my life is going to be like? And then you think, I wonder if anybody else is thinking this. Or am I the only one? Am I... Am I all by myself and having to fend through all of these emotional issues on my own? Listen, God hears, knows, and cares for you. That is the message of Exodus. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're single and you don't want to be. You come into a church like this with a billion kids and you've been run over three times already tonight by kids that aren't your own. And every time you enter in, you think, my goodness, Everything about this church is, is screaming to me how alone I am and how no one gets me. Maybe you're wondering if you're ever going to meet that person that will one day marry you. 
Maybe you're wondering if you will ever be able to share the deepest, most intimate details of your life with someone else. Listen, the message of Exodus for you is that God hears, cares, and loves you. Maybe tonight, you know, you're a young person in middle school or in high school. Man, I remember those days. You guys remember those days? Trying so desperately to fit in with a particular group. Saying that I liked stuff that I didn't like. Listening to music that I thought was cool but I thought was terrible. Um, Wanting to go do things because I thought this was the great thing to do. Um, Thinking if, if I could just get into this group or hang out with these people, my life would be so much better. But really, you feel alone as you walk down the halls of your school or as you play sports with your league. The message of Exodus for you tonight is that God cares for you, hears you, and loves you. God will rescue you from your loneliness. But the people of Israel, 3,500 years ago in Egypt, were not just lonely. They were that, but they were also sorely oppressed. They were persecuted and abused. And so the text, the story shows us not just that God rescues people from loneliness, although he certainly does. It also shows us that God rescues people from oppression. If you look at chapter 3 where God first appears to Moses in the burning bush, there's many things we could say about that wonderful story. But what I want you to see for now is how many times God talks to Moses about what's going on with his people. Look in verse 7. I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And then down in verse 9. The cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them come Bring them out of Egypt, Moses. The people of God were oppressed. They were under the auspices of an authoritarian government that did not allow their free existence. Um, It's a deep concern for God here to rescue people out of oppression. That's another very clear thing, a very clear message from this story. It's true of God now just as it was true of God then. God cares for the needy, for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, and for the outcast. Those are the people that God indelibly and undoubtedly pursues. God certainly cares for, if you're here and you're a Christian, he cares for our brothers and sisters around the world who cannot assemble and worship freely. Because they now, just as the Israelites 3,500 years ago, live under totalitarian, oppressive regimes which do not allow them to freely assemble and exercise freedom of religion. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you are called through the story of Exodus to pray for and love our brothers and sisters in countries like Syria and Pakistan and Indonesia and North Korea and China and many places around the globe where to be a Christian means that you run risk of death each and every day. That is undoubtedly part of what is meant here when we think about and read about God caring about people who are oppressed. He cares about those who are under the cruel and intolerable hand of evil and wicked governments around the world. But more is meant as well. Most of you have never had an experience that exactly mimics the experience of the Israelites in ancient Egypt. You've never been under a totalitarian state. Some of you think you are now, but you're not. You think you are, but uh, we're not in China. 
You are free to assemble and worship God. If you're not a Christian, you're free to assemble and worship the God you want to worship, which is something that we value and think is important. But there are other things, there are other ways in which you experience oppression today. It's not necessarily oppression from a totalitarian government like it was in Egypt. But perhaps for you, as you read through the message of Exodus, you need to hear that God rescues you from you from the oppression of, of debilitating physical conditions. You know, I, I know many of you struggle every day when you wake up with pain, with physical pain in your joints, in your limbs, in your head that won't go away and that have to be medicated. And many of you undoubtedly have been told by some physician or doctor that you will most likely experience this pain probably in increasing frequency for the rest of your life. I believe that the message of Exodus tells you, among other things, that God will one day rescue you from that kind of oppression. You see, any form of suffering and evil and injustice in this world is a form of oppression that God wants to free you from. I remember when our oldest son, Nate, was two, Um, he began just out of nowhere sort of walking with a little bit of a limp in his gait. He would walk around like this. And it got a little bit worse, and we couldn't figure out what it was. He hadn't been injured in any significant way that we could remember. And so we started taking him to our family physician, and they didn't know what to do, so they referred us to an orthopedic, a pediatric orthopedist up in Phoenix. So we drove up from Tucson to Phoenix and uh, saw this pediatric orthopedist, and two-year-old Nate was running up and down the, the stair, uh, up and down the hallway, walking with a very slight limp. And the lady who was our physician said, it looks like he has the early symptoms of a diagnosis of juvenile, ju- juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And obviously we were very saddened and uh, in many ways shocked to hear that. And um, we did many things. We cried and were sad and we prayed. And we asked the elders of our church at the time to come and pray over Nate, as we are called to do in James chapter 5. The elders of our church in Tucson came and they laid their hands on Nate and they prayed for him and they prayed that if it was God's will, he would remove this, this malady, this physical ailment from our son. And a few weeks later, Nate went back up to the orthopedist and uh, basically all of the prior symptoms were gone. Uh, he was walking much more normally and to this day, he's a five and a half year old that I can barely keep up with in a race. God I'm fully convinced, freed him. He he rescued him from that particular physical oppression. God can and does do things like that every day. God may never rescue you in this life from the oppression that you face physically, but he will rescue you in the greater exodus. When Jesus comes and takes all of his people with him to the final promised land. Maybe your oppression isn't physical. Maybe Maybe it's emotional or mental. Many of us struggle with depression. Many of us deal with complex uh, physio-emotional, spiritual issues. And these undoubtedly oppress things too, oppress people too. Whether it's it's, um, someone who's bipolar, whether it's someone who's mentally retarded, whether it's someone who feels deep and dark depression and cannot get themselves out of it, God cares to rescue people from such positions. I'll never forget uh, when I was in seminary, 
Uh, I went and worshipped at this church. This was before Marianne and I got married. I was single and looking for a church, and I went and worshipped worshipped in a church in suburban Philadelphia. And on the front row of this church, there was a young man, probably about the age of 20, who was uh, evidently mentally retarded. And um, yet he was, to this day, and he was Presbyterian too, which is even more amazing, the most joyful, exuberant, happy ecstatic worshiper of Jesus Christ I have ever seen. Sat at the very front row. And I went to this church multiple times, largely because I was fascinated by this man. Not because I liked the preaching that much. And uh, he, he would get up and just very evidently with all of his heart, praise Jesus with voice, with hands, with every part of his body. And I one day spoke to his parents and they told me that He was born with serious retardation and had grown up that way, and they had had, obviously, to deal with that in many significant ways throughout their life. But when he was in high school, he went to a camp and expressed faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized. And from that moment on, his parents told me his life was very seriously different. He still struggled with his emotional and spiritual issues. He still struggled with being mentally retarded, and yet he was one who was rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus longs to free people from those kinds of oppression. Maybe your oppression is socioeconomic. You know, it is possible, and I know this is a very complex issue, but it is possible for there to be poor people who are poor not just because they're lazy. It is possible for poverty, poverty to be something that's endemic and for people to experience debilitating debt and horrendous financial circumstances through no fault of their own. The Bible very clearly says that God longs to rescue people who are undergoing that kind of oppression as well. Just read the minor prophets. God cares for the downtrodden, the needy, and the oppressed. Whatever it is that you right now are struggling with, whatever it is that is oppressing you, be it physical, mental, spiritual, or emotional, God longs and promises to rescue from it, rescue you from it fully. God promises to rescue you from your loneliness. God promises to rescue you from your oppression. Last thing, God will rescue you from slavery. And you know, Exodus, if it's teaching anything, is teaching this. God wants to rescue those who are enslaved. And God will rescue you because you are a slave. You know that the Bible teaches in many places that all who sin... All who rebel against our creator God, which is all of us, including me, uh, all of us are slaves to sin. We are in bondage. And part of what Jesus is doing when he rescues people is tearing off the chains, the slavery, the bondage that our sin causes us to be under. He does that freely by his grace. That is the good news of the gospel. And the Exodus undoubtedly is pointing you to that as well. What is it that's enslaving you? If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, what is it that you are following? If you're here and you are a Christian and yet still struggle, which would be the rest of us, (laughs) what is it that you are struggling to escape the grasp of? And there are so many things. Maybe for you it's just a substance. Maybe you struggle with alcohol or with drugs or with prescription medications, or with cigarettes, or with food, or with sugar. 
It, it dominates your life so much that you can't live without it and be happy. Maybe if you're you, you're, your slavery is to the fear of man. You're, you're so enslaved and in bondage and captive to what other people think of you that you will go to any length to please them. You're so enslaved by your view of what their view of you is that you can't live peacefully unless you have some assurance that these people really like you or really accept you or really, really want you to be their friend. Maybe you're, maybe you're enslaved to your past. There have been things that have happened to you or things that you've done that you just can't seem to outrun. The consequences seem to chase you wherever you go. You've left a state. You've left a city. You might have even left a country to run away from your problems. But your problems continue to chase you down because their chains are longer than your ability to outrun them. Listen, the good news of the Exodus is that Jesus comes to rescue you from your bondage, no matter what it is. The good news of the Exodus is for you to hear that you cannot break your own chains. It's essential to understand. The Israelites could not save themselves. You cannot deliver yourself. No nine-step program, no book, no relationship, no new job is going to ultimately free you from the oppression and the bondage and the slavery that plagues you and occupies your every moment. The only thing that will free you from your past, the only thing that will free you from your substance abuse, the only thing that will free you from your loneliness, the only thing that will free you from your fear of man is to run to Jesus the liberator. Is to enable him and allow him to break your chains and pull you out in a greater exodus. And we could summarize the whole story and conclude our talk by just looking at what God tells the people to do in Exodus 14. Because it makes my point so well. He tells them, I'm going to come and rescue you. I hear you. And then in chapter 14, verse 13, he says, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which, what? He will work for you today. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. What must you do to escape slavery and bondage? Stop trying to get away and rest in the rescuer. Watch him free you. That's what the Bible calls faith. Faith is merely to trust that what you cannot do, Jesus has done. That where you cannot free yourself, Jesus will. That at the cross, all of the things that bind you are defeated and done away with. And in the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, you have proof eternal that Jesus is more powerful than any of your cruel taskmasters. The Exodus calls you to trust Jesus because he will rescue you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. And Father, as we just very briefly survey the story of Exodus, we in many ways see ourselves mirrored there. We see that although we are not literally and physically 
as a nation or as a people oppressed in the way that the ancient Israelites were, we indeed are still under bondage to even a greater master than Pharaoh, to ultimately to our own sin, to our own rebellion against you. And that shows itself up in so many ways, God, some of which are explicitly our fault and some of which are not. And yet, Father, we hear in this story that you saved these people thousands of years ago through miraculous intervention in their lives, not, when, not because they deserved it, but, but when they didn't deserve it and even when they couldn't do anything to aid you. And Father, we, we hear that you still do that sort of rescuing work today and ask now that you would come and rescue us. If there be any here who feel compelled to seek you for rescue, may they run to you tonight. If there be any here tonight, O oh God, who know that you do rescue them and yet still so oftentimes feel enslaved, may they again trust you. Father, help us. Help us to believe that through the work of Jesus we are free, free indeed. And we pray it in his name. Amen.